Right. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to have some fun. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And uh, I, I think you'll understand why as we go through it. But it's a story found in both of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And I like Luke's version of it because Luke gives us a little more detail than Matthew does. He gives us some clues that might help us make the story come to life a little more. Some very interesting details as as far as I'm concerned, and I hope you find the same in the story. But before we dive into it, would you bow your hearts for prayer, please? Dear Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray, Father, that my words will not get in the way, but that your word and your spirit will work on our hearts to help us to understand what you would have for us this day. In Jesus' name. And everybody said. Amen. What I have next is a picture of, this is Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. This is on the uh, north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And um, it's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. That's what the Romans called it. <clears throat> and in fact, if you look across at the slide, way back there on the hillside, you can see a, a town up in there. That's actually a modern day town of Tiberias. In the foreground is Capernaum. This is a a really interesting village. Jesus spent a lot of time, as you know, he spent a lot of time in Galilee. It was his favorite place to be. In fact, this this area here, you can see on uh, looking at the screen, on on the right side, the tall building, that's a gift shop. it's, uh, It's owned by the Catholic Church. I believe it was a monastery or something at one time. They use it as a gift shop now, and they built a church, that round building, is a church that has a glass floor. I visited here a couple of years ago, but it has a glass floor. And the reason it has a glass floor is looking down, you see the ruins in the foreground there? Not the white, but on, on the left side, those are, those are houses. That's old Capernaum, and they've excavated that. Well, underneath that round building, that church, with the glass floor, they believe that to be the house of Peter. Peter's home is there. We know Peter was from that area, that he was from Capernaum. And uh, the reason they believe that is because someone scratched the name Peter into the stone in in one of the the stones in the wall there, and they've dated that to first century. So whether it is or not, we don't really know, but we do know that Peter was from Capernaum, from that area. And Jesus spent a lot of time here. In the foreground, the white, lighter color area, that is a synagogue. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But the the story that we are looking at takes place in this town of Capernaum. And it is the most important town on the the northern shore, the Sea of of Galilee. Yeah, northern shore. I said south a minute ago, didn't I? It's it's the northern shore. In fact, this is not, when we were there, this is just not very many miles from Syria. And while we were there, the U.S. had knocked down a Syrian jet fighter and tensions were very high. And uh, yeah, we were kind of a little bit on edge while we were there, but, but there was really nothing to worry about. But anyway, that, that is the area. And this is an important, an important center for the Roman government at this time in Palestine because this is a, a tax collection center. So it was very important to the Romans to maintain the peace here, to maintain control, all right? It wasn't always easy. In fact, they had... Um, a garrison of Roman soldiers had been sent there with a specific purpose of keeping the peace. 
and uh, squelching any uh, rebellions that might pop up, which happened in Galilee often. Now, I want you to think about this time period. Take a look at this map. This is the first century, the first century Rome, time of Jesus. And at this time, it's kind of the height of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire spread clear across what we now call Europe, from the British Isles to Spain, west and then to North Africa in the south and east into Mesopotamia, what was once the great Babylonian Empire. It was then at this time called the Persian Empire. It is what we would call the Parthian Empire. It's part of what we would call today Iran. And the Middle East was near the far eastern borders of the Roman Empire. So what we have here is a Roman legion guarding this area. And under Caesar Augustus, the Roman army had become a professional world-conquering machine. You know that history. And it was made up of 28 legions, somewhere over 300,000 men. Now, each legion had about 5,500 5, fighting men, plus all the support people. But anyway, about 5,500 5, fighting men. And then these legions, of all of these um, 28 legions, the legions were divided up into 10 cohorts. The second to the 10th cohort had about 500 men each, commanded by a centurion. Now these cohorts then were divided up into centuries. The centuries had between 80 and 100 men approximately. And finally, these centuries were made up of eight-man units. By the way, a little side here. You know, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, the term that is used there is, is parakletos. Parakletos means one sent alongside of, and it's actually a military term. And it's a term that was used in these um, centuries, these, these eight-man fighting units. So what it is, if you were in an eight-man fighting unit, you were assigned a partner, a buddy, who was called a parakletos. The job of that parakletos was if you got, let's say you got uh, a, a little anxious before the battle, got a little nervous or frightened, he, your partner's job was to encourage you. If you got wounded in battle, that parakletos was one to get you out of harm's way. The parakletos also had your back. So that was the role and the function of the parakletos. Now you understand why, why Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being our parakletos, right? He's got our backs. He's got our backs. He's there to help us through all things. Anyway, back to our story. Now, you have these eight men units of centuries, and you have these cohorts, and there was a cohort that was assigned to this Capernaum area. Now, I told you, I told you kind of the makeup of all these cohorts, and that was the second through the tenth cohorts. But what I want to really focus on is the first cohort, because the evidence suggests that this was the cohort that was operating in, around, in and around Capernaum at this time, the second or the, or the first cohort. Now, this was a different, this was a different group. The first cohort was very special. It was an elite fighting group. This cohort and its five centuries doubled in size. It was larger than any of the other cohorts. They numbered up, up to around 800 to 1,000 men. And the centurions of the first cohort were the most skilled 
fighters in the entire Roman force. We would call them today like special forces, right? In fact, my, my son is, is in the army. He's, he's currently in the army. He uh, served in the Airborne. Uh, he was a combat medic. He served in Afghanistan. Uh, had some real interesting stories there. In fact, he would, he would call home. We would Skype. And he'd say, is mom around? I go, no, she's not here. She's good. I want to tell you a story. <laughs> Stories that he wouldn't tell her, you know, tell me if she were around. And some of them were quite frightening. Can I tell you a quick story? Okay. As a combat medic, he was in a FOB. You know what a FOB is? Forward operating base. I mean, they were out there right at, at, the, at the front lines of fighting the Taliban. And every day they were in combat. Every single day they were under fire in this uh, Fob. They were always being attacked. And at one point, uh, they were in the aid station, and he and uh, another medic and a physician's assistant were, were in, in this little building, and a rocket came in and exploded, blew the place up. And everybody outside of this thought everyone inside was done, that they, they had been killed. The smoke cleared, cleared all the smoke out, and they came in, my son was standing, the wall behind him was standing in front of the wall when this thing blew up, and there was someone behind him and someone in front of him. The person in front of him got wounded, but the person behind him, when the smoke cleared, they turned around and looked, and on the wall was a whiteboard, okay? There was a whiteboard. On the whiteboard was an outline of a human figure, my son. All the shrapnel went around him. And the guy behind him said, boy, you are the luckiest guy in the world. And he said, no, I have a dad that's home praying for me every day. While my son was deployed, I wore his graduation ring from boot camp and his dog tags around my neck and never took him off uh, the whole time that he was in Afghanistan. And I learned the lesson of what it means when Scripture says, pray without ceasing. You understand what that means when you have a son in the military who is in harm's way. Anyway, he's back now. He's back in the States. He's doing recruiting now for, he's recruiting doctors in the military. And he's soon wanting to move back to, the reason I even came back to this, um, he wants to move back to Fort Bragg. He has an opportunity to recruit special forces members. So that's why I mentioned that, because these, this first cohort were tough guys, special forces. These are the guys that the, the Roman... Um, military leaders would send into the toughest places to get control of whatever was going on, right? So you get a picture there. Now, the top centurion of this cohort had a name as well. He was called the Primus Pilus. If you, anybody know Latin? It actually means first spear. So you get a picture of this guy, right? He's the first spear. He was the top centurion. He actually didn't just lead the cohort. He was in charge of the whole legion. It's kind of like a sergeant major in the army. A sergeant major has, major has almost more authority than others that rank higher than he does. Sergeant majors are, are really up there in the army. Now, have I bored you yet? Okay, hang in there, all right? Because here's where it gets really interesting, at least to me. I, I love history. But I also love watching scripture come alive when you read these stories by understanding the history and what was happening culturally and happening situationally at the time that these things were written. 
Now we know from historical sources that Legion III, the Gallica Legion, was operating in Palestine around the first century. So we've, we can identify which legion was actually there. Now this Gallica Legion was a well-known legion. It was founded by Julius Caesar in about 49 BC. So about 50, 60 years earlier, right? And the Gallica Legion had been sent by Mark Antony against the Parthians, the, the Persian Empire, who were threatening Syria near Damascus. So this was the legion that went in there to put down that rebellion. And then in all probability, this was the cohort that was in and around Capernaum at the time of Jesus. Now with that background, I want to jump into the story that we find in Luke, okay? Here's the story. When Jesus had finished, when he had finished saying all of this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. All right. Here's what we know. Here, here's the facts that we pick up from this narrative. First of all, it's a centurion, right? And in all probability, it's the, the spear, the first spear, right? Secondly, we learn that his, his slave is sick and he's about to die. Next, we learn that this slave is highly valued by the centurion. And finally, the centurion asked the town elders, would, would you go ask Jesus to come and heal my servant? You go ask him. He asked the town elders. So he has some kind of connection or relationship. Even if it's just ordering them to do so, he asked them to do it rather than go to Jesus himself. <clears throat> now, again, we know from historical evidence that this was the famed Gallica Legion, the first cohort, led by the Primus Pilus, the first spear. So we get a picture of who this centurion was and of his importance, right? Now, Matthew and Luke add some context to this story for us. Luke says, <clears throat> when Jesus had finished saying all of this, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Matthew says, he adds this detail, when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So he's coming from somewhere. Anyone want to take a guess of where he's coming from, where large crowds had followed him, and he's in the region of Galilee? Any guess? This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I had a picture of, of that place here. <clears throat> we were able to walk up there, and this is the area. And that, there's the town over on the far side on the hill. That's uh, Tiberias. We actually stayed there. Um, to the right of that is a mountain, and I haven't got the whole mountain in this shot. I should have brought that pic too. But anyway, uh, there's another story where Jesus went up on a high mountain to pray. That's the high mountain. We went up there, and it's a beautiful view. You can look, look right down from there to the ruins of Magdala. Does that sound familiar? Mary from Magdala. Mary Magdala, right? That's where she was from. You can see the ruins that they have excavated there. Anyway, that's the high mountain that Jesus uh, had gone up on. And this, where the grass is, this is in all probability the area where the Sermon on the Mount took place. And this is important 
because he's up on the mountain with um, hundreds and thousands of people up there, right? The whole crowd follows him down into Capernaum. That's the picture that we get. Now, in Matthew's version, as Jesus comes down from the mountainside, he encounters a leper, and he heals the leper. Now, I want you to remember something. Often when you read these stories and you put the gospel versions, the different views of the story together, details begin to emerge, and the details are important. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that, there, that is there by accident or just because he thought it was, and, you know, I'll just throw this detail in there. The details are in there to teach us something. We'll see that in a moment. So the context, again, Jesus has just finished giving this Sermon on the Mount, okay? I tell you, what an experience that was to sit there with your Bible open and read through the Sermon on the Mount and imagine yourself sitting there listening to Jesus speak those words to you. Wonderful experience, very moving. Anyway, he comes down off the mountain, encounters the leper, heals the leper, and then he comes into, and it's just a walk right down the hillside, right down into Capernaum. In fact, we had to do that because our bus took us up to the top, dropped us off, and then was going to pick us up at the bottom. But our bus broke down, so we had to make the walk into Capernaum, and it's not that far. Anyway, he, on, on the way into Capernaum, encounters the leper, heals him, and then as he enters Capernaum, the elders from Capernaum come to Jesus and ask him to heal this centurion's servant. Now, I don't know if you've caught on to this yet, but this must have been a pretty busy day for Jesus, right? Can you imagine for hours and hours and hours up on the mountainside teaching the people, coming down, walking down the hillside, you encounter a leper, the emotional experience of that, you heal him, you come into Capernaum, and here's more demands on you being made, right? Now, I wish we had time to read the entire Sermon on the Mount, because it would just, it fits the narrative of what happens next so beautifully, but we don't have that kind of time. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. Read it this afternoon. Just read through the Sermon on the Mount with, with what we've discussed here this morning, what, what I've, I've brought to you with all of that in mind, because the Sermon on the Mount is the inauguration of the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. This is where Jesus launches the kingdom of heaven here on earth. I encourage you to read it. And as Jesus now makes his way, having given that inaugural speech on the mountain, makes his way to the little town of Capernaum, again, the home of Peter. He heals the leper. Now, think about that experience, healing the the leper. How did they feel about lepers in that day? They were despised and rejected, right? If you were walking down the street and a leper was approaching, you'd cross the other side of the street, you couldn't even breathe the same air as a leper, or you would be, you would be labeled unclean, and you would have to go to the priest, and the priest would have to examine you and declare you clean. Otherwise, you would be um, rejected from entering the synagogue or the temple. So that's how they felt about lepers. Now let me ask you this question. Was there anything worse 
than a leper in the Jewish mind. Any guess? How about a Roman centurion? The occupying force, the leader of the occupying force, they hated the Romans with a passion, right? Hated them. And this Roman centurion, remember, was who? The first spear. To anyone outside of Capernaum, those following Jesus down the hillside into the town, here was someone to be despised as much or even more than a leper. The centurion represented something so awful, so much worse than even the fate of leprosy. So Matthew includes the story of the leper, the leper being healed as a way of saying, you think healing a leper is miraculous? You haven't seen anything yet. Now, from the narrative, we know that the local elders of the synagogue respected this centurion. But here, or reader outside of Capernaum wouldn't have gotten that connection. They wouldn't have had any affection for this guy. But at least the elders of the local synagogue in Capernaum had some respect for this guy. So as Jesus approaches Capernaum, let's, let's pick up the story from the top again. Here we go. <clears throat> when Jesus had finished saying all of this in the hearing of the people, Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. Now I want you to notice carefully how these Jewish leaders approach Jesus on behalf of of the Roman centurion. Here's what they say. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man, who, who's this man? The centurion, right? This man deserves to have you do this. Why would they think a Roman centurion deserves to have Jesus honor him by healing his servant? They hated these guys, right? This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. You get the picture? This Roman centurion built them a synagogue. And we don't know why he built it. Some commentators suggest that perhaps he did this as a way of endearing himself to the people so that he could kind of get on their good side and maybe they would ratchet down the rebellions that were going on here. That's a possibility. He found a new way to deal with it rather than just an iron fist. Now take a look at this picture. This is the shot you had earlier the, looking down at Capernaum. This is that synagogue. Now the problem is that this synagogue is dated about the 4th century. So this is a later synagogue. This is not a synagogue from the time of Jesus. But I want you to notice this next picture. This is a side shot of an outside of the foundation. Now, can you see the difference in the stones there? And in fact, if you can read the sign, the sign is, is self-explanatory. The building is on top of an older building, an older synagogue. The top building is built in the, first, in the fourth century. The bottom building is, building is a first century structure. In other words, a later synagogue was built on a much older synagogue, a first century synagogue. Probably, well, 
It is the synagogue that the centurion built. And it's the synagogue that Jesus would have gone to in Capernaum. Now remember, there's the destruction of Jerusalem took place when? Anybody know? AD 70, right? So that's why the first century one is gone. It wasn't just Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed. There was mass destruction all over Palestine, including Capernaum. They destroyed that synagogue. So in the fourth century, another one, another one was built. <clears throat> so the story continues. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. The man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Folks, this is a very unusual story for the time. This hardened career centurion had endeared himself to the people of Capernaum, or at least to the religious leaders, right? And so much so that they plead with Jesus to grant the centurion's request. And remember, again, this is quite possibly the primus pilus, right? Not just the commander of a cohort, not just the typical centurion, but probably the leader of the entire legion operating in the area. In other words, this was one tough son of a Caesar, right? Now also notice that unlike Matthew's account in Luke, the centurion does not come to Jesus himself. Now there's a reason for that. See, the religion, he sends the religious leaders to Jesus on his behalf. Very unusual. But it gets even more interesting. Let's read the narrative again. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve... Catch that. The centurion is saying, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why... Slide there. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Wow. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. <laughs> when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and, and turning to the crowd following him. Now, remember, this is a crowd. This is, you know, I don't know how many came down the mountain with him, but probably most of the people that had been up there on the mountain during the Sermon of the Mount, all of them came down in the village and witnessed this thing. Turning to the crowd following him, Jesus said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I love this guy, the centurion. I love this guy. Now, one source I was reading suggested that something happened. Something changed within this man, this Roman centurion, this first spear, right? This hardened Roman fighting man, leader of men, demanding of respect and authority, something moved him to soften his relationship with the people of Capernaum. Something moved this hardened soldier, leader, legionnaire of authority who gave orders and men jumped. Something moved him to humbly ask for Jesus' help. I have a theory. The Sermon on the Mount's taking place just up on the hillside above Capernaum. 
Do you think a Roman centurion in charge of keeping peace in the area is going to keep an eye on what's going on with this crowd up above the town? I can imagine the centurion taking a few soldiers with him, going up there just to make sure everything is kosher, that there isn't a rebellion starting. And he hears the entire sermon of Jesus there on the mountainside. And folks, when you hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you through the word of God, and the Holy Spirit takes that and begins to massage your heart and your life, something happens, right? That's my theory anyway. My story, and I'm sticking to it. The text goes on. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, following him, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house, the centurion's house, and found the servant well. It's a great story, isn't it? Now, the text says that the centurion highly valued his slave. The wording used there could be taken a couple of ways. One, he had a deep affection for the slave, or two, he paid a lot of money for him, right? Either way, he, he, he was valued, valuable property. And both may be true. But the answer may just lie in the understanding of the concept of Roman familia. Have you ever heard of familia? Sounds like family, right? That's where we get the word family from. It's like familia. Roman familia is like family, only a bit different. See, a Roman such as this centurion who took even a slave into his familia regarded that person, though property, not just highly valuable, but valuable to the well-being of the familia. Property, yes, but his worth went beyond monetary value like a possession. In fact, Roman honor compelled a person like the centurion to risk his very life for his property, the people in his familia. And there's something else. How did the Jews feel about the Roman occupiers? You know, I mean, Jews, especially religious leaders, would not dare step inside of a Roman centurion or any Roman or any Gentile for that matter, would not step into their home, right? Because it would render them unclean. If you stepped into the home of someone who was a non-Jew, you would be unclean, just like you would if you breathed the air or touched a leper. Got it? So you would be rejected from entering the synagogue and the temple. So the, <laughs> the centurion actually honors this prejudice, and he tells Jesus, eh, pick up the story again. He says, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. You get that? I don't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But you say the word and my servant will be healed. And you know the rest of this, right? And at the end, Jesus says, Jesus is amazed. I have not seen such great faith. Now, remember what we have seen. Connect all the dots. Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Remember part of that discourse? Jesus said things like, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor 
but hate your enemy. That was a Jewish axiom, right? Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Who told them that? The religious leaders. Then Jesus says, but I tell you. What is it? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And then he goes down the mountainside to Capernaum and he heals the leper first off. Contact with the leper would have already made Jesus unclean, expelling him from the synagogue, from worship, from family and friends, from contact with other Jews for a time until ritual cleansing could take place and then an examination by the priest and hopefully then declared clean. The same was also true of entering the home of a Gentile, in this case, the Roman centurion. And if Jesus enters his home, the centurion knows this would make Jesus unclean according to their laws and traditions, and the centurion respects this. So you see what's happening here? The centurion is giving Jesus an out. Don't make yourself unclean by coming to my house. Just say the word. Just say the word. Folks, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the nature of God. Jesus came to touch the unclean, to come alongside the lost, to come for the hopeless, the impure, the contaminated, even those who don't yet know just what it is they need. Jesus came to deliver from tradition, from laws, from hindrances, anything that was in the way, anything obscuring, obstructing access to God. In fact, that is exactly the core of the message that he just finished preaching up on the, on the mountainside. And now as Jesus did with the leper, he does with the centurion. Jesus says, The story, Luke says, he was amazed. And turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to his house and found the servant well. <laughs> great story. You see, folks, this story is, is, is more than a story of a leper returning to health. More than a slave being healed of whatever it was the, the illness was that was about to take his life. The miracle here above all other miracles is the miracle of a heart that was thought to be stone cold, hard, unreachable when exposed to the love of God in Jesus Christ is melted, softened, when the unreachable, the unclean, the rejected by all others come into the presence of Jesus, healing is found. I don't know about you this morning, but I need stories like this. Do you? I think the church needs this story. I think the world needs this story. In the commentary, observations in the book, Desire of Ages. Are you familiar with the book, Desire of Ages? The author suggests something so very relevant and important to the story. 
What is pointed out is that there was a huge difference between the Pharisees and the centurion. You know what that difference was? The difference between the centurion and the religious leaders? Here's the quote for your consideration today. The quote is, one recognized his need. Okay? In fact, here's, here's the quote. Let me show you. Our great need is our only claim of God's mercy. Well, that's after the author has pointed out the difference between the centurion and the religious leaders. Did the religious leaders recognize their need? All you have to do is finish the end of the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you could see them that they didn't. See, the religious leaders and their self-righteousness commended the centurion because of the favor that he had shown them. Jesus, you need to do this favor for him. Heal his servant because he, oh, he, he built us a synagogue. He deserves it. Those are the words that they use. But notice the contrast. The next slide there. In disparity, the centurion said, notice what he says, I'm not worthy. His heart was touched by the grace of Christ. He saw his unworthiness. His, he trusted not in his own goodness. The statement, I am not worthy, was his great need. He saw Jesus, not just as a worker of miracles, but as, but as a friend and a savior of mankind. That's why Jesus tells those following him, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. In all of Israel. Now, many years later, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a young, upcoming church leader. His name is Titus. So Paul writes this little letter to Titus. And here's what he says. He says, he saved us. Who, who's he? God, through Jesus Christ, right? God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That sounds like the simplistic faith of the centurion. So my friends, when, when you get that little voice, that little nagging voice, it comes to you and says, what a terrible person you are. Such a horrible sinner. You keep doing the same stupid stuff over and over. Maybe that's not you. Maybe it's just me. You keep doing it over and over and over again. And you feel utterly helpless. This is the very thing that makes his redeeming power a necessity. This is what the centurion got. This was the difference between the leper, the centurion, and the religious leaders of the day. It's interesting to me what happens next. Jesus leaves Capernaum and he goes to Nain, Nain in, in English Bibles. It's about 25 miles away, and on his way there, he encounters a funeral procession. A mother has lost her only son. Large crowd following her, large crowd following Jesus. The two merge. Jesus stops 
and calls the, the dead son back to life. Why is that story there? Because maybe some of us need a resurrection experience. You put all of these stories together, and we need Jesus. And sometimes our hearts need to be turned, awakened, given rebirth, raised from the dead, right? All these stories fit together. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, why Jesus came. So that's why the scripture reading was this. When Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith? Or are people who want to lift up their good works to God and say, we deserve this? Or will he find people who say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim? Amen.